So there I am, sitting on some kind of metaphorical cliff with my feet dangling over a foggy sea. I've had years of theological education, preaching, ministry, all the good stuff, all the solid, secure, certain, standing on solid ground kind of stuff. Sure, it wasn't always easy, and I definitely wasn't always confident. God knows I was egregiously mistaken plenty of times, but there was always something to stand on. And now I've walked right up to the edge of this cliff, and there's not much further to go without diving, and I can't see what's out there, in a manner of speaking. It seems like I go round in circles. I answer questions, but then I come back around to deeper questions or more challenging versions of the original ones. I look back and see a cycle of growth, but this time feels different somehow. You see, in the past, I at least knew what questions to ask. And I certainly didn't know the answers in advance, but I knew at least what kind of answer I needed. And sure, the answers often surprised me, but they were still answers. This time, I'm not even sure what the question is. It's not like I have questions with no answers anymore. I have a lot of answers, but can't seem to find the right words to ask myself or God. It's not like I'm losing faith in God. It's like I'm re-examining what it is all over again. Faith, God, humanity, life, the whole dang universe. All the puzzle pieces were in the right place, but someone just flipped it over and there's another picture on the back side, and it's a picture of a puzzle. Like, some kind of weird jigsaw version of Inception. And then I find some words in a beautiful paraphrase of the Tao Te Ching, one that was actually written for Christians, no less. And I feel something resonating, like the words are pounding on a gong inside my soul. Shh, the way cannot be spoken. You can only point, become quiet. If you speak, only whisper, for the way is beyond words. Become still. If you think, don't think too much. The way cannot be bound by your beliefs. Become calm. Let your mind relax. Allow the waters of your soul to settle. Become open. Don't strive after certainty or you will be blinded by your own illusions. Instead, let go of what you think you know. Open yourself to mystery, for the way is greater than your imagination. And just like that, my questions in all of their obscurity are still exactly the same, but my perspective has been radically transformed. The fog isn't something to be feared anymore. Maybe I should just jump into it. This has been part of my journey with the Tao Te Ching, that ancient book of Chinese wisdom and spirituality that didn't draw me away from Christ-centered faith, but actually helped me hold on to it. Hi, my name's Corey Farr, and I want to welcome you to the second episode of this podcast series, A Christian Reads the Tao Te Ching. In this series, I'll be working through the Tao Te Ching from beginning to end and discussing how so many of its themes and lessons are directly applicable to spiritual formation as a Jesus follower. The whole thing is a much more detailed spin-off of a series I'm writing on my blog, where I post some of my poetry as well as other articles about faith and spirituality, uh, which you can check out at coreyfar.com. 
If you're not sure what this series is all about, or if you have any questions about the Tao Te Ching or what it means for a Christian to read it while staying faithful to Christ, uh, please check out the introduction episode to this series where I address some of those questions right up front. In today's episode, we're going to be tackling some of the toughest chapters in the TTC. We're going to talk about chapters 1 and 4. Uh, like I said, I'll be working through the book in order, but sometimes I need to skip around and pair chapters together from different parts when they address the same themes. And normally, I try to sum up the main points in the introduction, but these two are almost impossible to sum up quickly, so let's just go ahead and jump right in. I think the Tao Te Ching is no less than a full-on uh, record of somebody's total experience of the divine um, before the coming of Christ. The first chapter of the Tao Te Ching is one of the most difficult and confusing in the whole book, but it's also kind of a foundation to everything the book has to say about the Tao. In fact, this is a terrible marketing strategy, by the way, but it might be better for some people to save this episode for later. Uh, the next few episodes, we're going to talk about some of the much more quote-unquote, practical chapters in the TTC, but this one is pretty philosophical. Uh, but I encourage you to listen to this one, but if you feel at any point like you just want to revisit it later, that's okay. Uh, it, it gets pretty deep, but I think it's, it's really just awesome stuff. Uh, chapter one is filled with mystery. It's filled with uncertainty, but basically there are two main points here. One, the Tao, the way of the universe, is completely beyond human language and comprehension. If we think we understand it, we definitely don't. And two, it is human desires that stop us from being able to see the Tao. Now, we're going to look at what exactly Lao Tzu means by desires in the next section, but first, let's hear the chapter, and then we'll start with the first point. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The unnameable is the eternally real. Naming is the origin of all particular things. Free from desire, you realize the mystery. Caught in desire, you see only the manifestations. Yet mystery and manifestations arise from the same source. This source is called darkness. Darkness within darkness, the gateway to all understanding. Author Oliver Benjamin thinks that as a philosophical text, or as some have called it a religious text, but it was never really meant to be religious, uh, this might be the most humble book ever written. Basically, it says what we're going to talk about can't really be talked about because words can't really describe it. Uh, or as Ron Hogan translates, if you can talk about it, it ain't Tao. If it has a name, it's just another thing. Now, this kind of like extreme agnosticism could be taken as really contradictory towards some really important Christian beliefs. After all, we can know an awful lot about God by what he has revealed to us in Jesus, who was pretty clear when he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Uh, we can know the heart of God when we look at Jesus, and Jesus himself is part of the larger story that tells us about God and his people. Uh, but I want to say something that's going to sound really controversial, and I'm sure that if I tweeted it, uh, it would be some juicy clickbait and would get me uh, probably quite a bit of feedback. But here it is. I think some Christians really need to be a little more agnostic. Now, before you call me a heretic, let me explain. 
First of all, the very name that God gives himself in the Old Testament, Yahweh in the Hebrew, is pretty much untranslatable. We don't really have a perfect idea of what it means, but it has something to do with simply being. I am who I am, or I will be what I will be, or something like that. But, I mean, that's pretty vague, right? Moses says, what name should I tell the people? And God just says, tell them I am. Sound familiar? The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name, is not too far from a God who gives the really mysterious I am as his eternal name. Now, let's come back to the Gospel of John, uh, which we talked about in the first episode. It's going to be a favorite of mine throughout the whole series because John seems to get the mystical side of Christian faith in a way that the other New Testament authors don't really hit on. Uh, We might even call John the most Taoist author of the Bible. There's some more clickbait for you, but um, I'm not trying to take it out of context. I'm just making a comparison. Uh, But we've already looked at John's first few verses in the last episode. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, which Chinese Bibles translate as, in the beginning was the Tao, or the Way. But John really hits on the mystery of God in so many places. Uh, Now, I think you've probably heard the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Even plenty of non-Christians have heard it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The problem is we tend to make this believing about having all of our facts and figures and doctrines figured out just right. But it's just a few verses earlier that John writes, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I think most of the time, believing in Jesus is a lot more about staying faithful and committed and open to trusting him rather than knowing what the hell we're actually talking about. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to know what we're talking about, but there's just a whole lot we really can't know. I mean, if you've been in the church, you've probably heard another famous verse where God says to Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We mostly tend to quote these out of context to comfort people who are dealing with crappy situations. Uh, They become one of those trite and honestly annoying phrases, like telling someone God has a plan when they're right in the middle of grieving a heartbreak, or going to a funeral and telling a weeping daughter, well, at least she's in a better place now. I don't think it's helpful to use words like these, uh, to brush off pain and sorrow like we do so often, but that's not my point here. My point is that it's worth considering that there's so much about God that we simply cannot understand. I mean, it was Augustine, probably the most famous theologian in all of church history, who said, if you understand it, it is not God. Augustine knew even after writing thousands of pages of theological work that we really can't get God. If you understand it, it is not God. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. Darkness within darkness, the gateway to all understanding. Now let's come back for a third time to the beginning of John's gospel. Like I said, it's a favorite of mine, but in the beginning was the Tao, and the Tao was with God, and the Tao was God. 
these first few verses are better described with words like mysterious and contemplative instead of philosophical or analytical or theological. They're an echo back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Again, darkness with darkness, the gateway to all understanding. Chapter 4, which we'll look at a little more closely in a few minutes, talks about something that sounds really strange to us. Tao is older than God. (laughs) What? How could something be older than God? Isn't that the whole point of God? Well, Lao Tzu wasn't a monotheist, so the idea of one eternal God like Christians or Muslims or Jews think of would have been totally foreign to him. He was probably referring to a chief god, one of a number of gods in the Chinese folk religion. So these two translations that I found probably a better uh, interpretation. One of them says, the Tao is older than the concept of God. And the other one says, it resembles the predecessor of God. But this leads us still deeper into the realm of mystery. When we read Genesis, we probably don't stop to consider what was God before humans were able to describe God, or what is God apart from human language. I think mystery is better expressed through poetry than it is through prose or narrative. I don't have a lot to explain, but I can share a poem, a spoken word piece that I wrote that might get at this idea a little better. In the beginning. The beginning of what? of everything, when the first notes of the cosmic symphony, the song of the universe, rang out of the silence, and the only one to hear was the Spirit of God, the selfsame Spirit who floated over the waters or below them. It's hard to tell the difference because there wasn't one. In the beginning, it all was waiting to be made. The beginning of what? Of everything, except God. But it was the beginning of God, as we can describe God. There's no way to say how God is, was, or would be apart from relationship to everything. So for our limited minds, it was the beginning of God. The only word we have for God before us, God before God, God before everything, is spirit. The spirit a not-quite-tangible wind above and beneath, a not-quite-tangible sea that the scripture so awkwardly calls formless and void before she speaks into being all that will be. Formless and void? Pointless emptiness, darker than the darkest darkness, the starkest contrast with everything we could ever know, the attrition of non-existence. It's almost unimaginable. This was the beginning. The beginning of what? of everything. And in this sea of entropy, the Spirit suddenly speaks, Light, be. Just as I am, so you too shall be. Somehow, space was created for something other than the Maker, and an enormous explosion of energy, a big bang brighter than the naked eye can see, burst forth. This was no mechanical causality, but the expression of a markedly particular personality, the Trinity, a triple singularity that freely and threely decision makes to limit his own autonomy, expressing her own creativity by giving some of their own freedom to be, to each piece of creation from the greatest to the least, from the humans to the beasts, from the waters to the trees, from heaven to hell, 
How else could God make something that is not God's self? Now we're going to move into the second half of chapter one. Like I said, the TTC is something that really needs to be read over and over again, so I highly recommend looking up a few translations and finding one you like. Uh, I've got some links posted on the site. But for now, I just want to read it again using Stephen Mitchell's famous translation, uh, the same one I used earlier. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The unnameable is the eternally real. Naming is the origin of all particular things. Free from desire, you realize the mystery. Caught in desire, you see only the manifestations. Yet mystery and manifestations arise from the same source. This source is called darkness. Darkness within darkness, the gateway to all understanding. This chapter says we must be free from desire to see mystery. But if we have desire, or more accurately are caught in it, we can only see what is visible and physical. But what is desire in the Tao Te Ching? If we don't understand this word, we're going to fail to understand so much because the topic comes up over and over and over again. The wise person must be free from desire to be effective. We must rid ourselves of desire to be at peace and to be a presence of peace for others. But desire here isn't just wanting something. It goes a lot deeper than that. Desire is when we want something that we don't have, when we hold on to that desire and it holds on to us and it causes only suffering and a kind of turning in on yourself. In fact, a soul turned in on itself is exactly how Martin Luther would describe the word sin in the 15th century, which was nearly 2,000 years after Lao Tzu. And it's not just Martin Luther and Lao Tzu. Other historical theologians, such as Augustine, found the roots of sin to be unchecked or unbalanced desires. We see this as early as Eden, the fruit was called desirable and pleasing to the eye. The thing that the Tao Te Ching does over and over and over again is remind us to be aware of our desires. What is it that's controlling us? I mean, seriously, even as I was preparing for this episode and I was reading through and thinking about the TTC all over again, I realized that I've been blogging and podcasting lately and my users and my views have been increasing, which is awesome. But I found that I'm not just writing purely for the joy uh, or purely for the practice of it. I'm actually starting to write out of a desire for more people to see my work. Uh, is it bad to be excited for more people to be reading and listening? I mean, I think of course not. But when it becomes a desire, as the TTC puts it, even if it's a small one, but it's one that I'm thinking about over and over again, it immediately starts to become unhealthy. Ron Hogan interprets this verse really well. His, his translation says, Stop wanting stuff. It keeps you from seeing what's real. When you want stuff, all you see are things. I don't want to see just things. I want to see what's real. And what is really real is mystery. And it's beyond anything I could ever grasp or imagine if I'm focused on all the things of life. I also like Jim Klatfelter's loose paraphrase, uh, where he turns all of the Tao Te Ching into rhyming poetry. Uh, sometimes it's really awkward, but this one's pretty nice. The space within is always there if you can moderate desire. A place of utter emptiness and possibility entire. Klatfelter hits the nail on the head. 
The TTC calls us to be empty over and over again, but it's not an emptiness that is totally disconnected from everything in the world. It is detached, in a sense, from the world, but not like an unhealthy detachment. Think of it more as like holding everything that comes your way with open hands. Not clenching your fists, no, not for anything. This doesn't mean there's no spirit, there's no fight, there's no drive in you. It means that you're open to all the possibilities, as Klatfelter says. You're open to seeing all of the things we've talked about so far. Here's another translation that really captures this idea. Empty of desire, perceive mystery. Filled with desire, perceive manifestations. These have the same source, but different names. Call them both deep, deep and deep again, the gateway to all mystery. God is unnameable. Naming God is the beginning of religion. Let go and you find God. Hold on and you get theology. Knowing God and not knowing God are ultimately the same. Their source is unknowing. In the beginning, darkness was over the face of the deep. Know this, and you know all. So we're going to cover chapters 2 and 3 next week, but for now I want to skip ahead to chapter 4. This chapter its like an expansion on chapter 1, so I don't need to rehash everything we just said, but it makes a couple really important points by showing the relationship between Tao and creation. And remember, again, we can think of the Tao as the way, the mystery of the universe, uh, and in a sense we can think of it as God in God's self. This chapter presents us with a metaphor that the Tao is something that is both empty and yet always pouring out into creation. It is empty in the sense that it doesn't need to contain anything other than itself. Yet it is also the source and sustainer of everything. Uh, I think of kind of like the code in the matrix, but that's not actually a person, so it's not a great analogy, but it's close, I think, maybe. Uh, At least it's entertaining. Here are a couple translations of the last few lines in verse 4, though. Jafu Feng writes, The Tao is an empty vessel. It is used, but never filled. O unfathomable source of 10,000 things. Uh, Whaley puts it a little bit simpler. He says, The way is like an empty vessel that may be drawn from without ever needing to be filled. And Stephen Mitchell does it this way. The Tao is like a well, used but never used up. It is like the eternal void filled with infinite possibilities. Even though the language might feel foreign here, it's really not so hard to see the ways in which the TTC resonates with a lot of scripture. Uh, In countless verses, God is said to be the source and sustainer of all things, from sunshine to rain to life itself. But this is the first time in the Tao Te Ching that we get introduced to the theme of pouring out. In a few episodes, we're actually going to see just how important water is within the TTC. Uh, Water that settles in the lowest places. Water that flows freely with the way things are supposed to be. Water that, in its own strength, can break down the hardest stones. Water that brings life. All of these are very important. And although the word water isn't used directly here, the Tao is described as a well that is always pouring out. And 
the same theme is prominent in the Bible. In Isaiah, God calls his people to drink from the wells of salvation. And later in Isaiah, he promises them that they will be like well-watered gardens with streams that never dry out. Uh, Jesus calls himself the living water, a flowing stream that will never die out. And he says people who drink of that stream will never be thirsty. And in turn, the water will flow out from them too, which he calls rivers of living water. By the way, in case you were wondering, it's no surprise this comes from the Gospel of John again. And actually, in the very last verses of Scripture, we hear of a new Garden of Eden and a new city where a river of living water flows through the city, watering the new tree of life. And it says the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. Uh, There's just one last verse I want to read from chapter 4 before I wrap up the episode. Uh, It's a notoriously hard one to translate, but I think this version in particular is really beautiful. Like I said before, in this chapter, we hear about how the Tao relates to creation. And here is the way that the Tao, this endlessly flowing source of all things with no beginning and no end, this thing that we cannot name or fully understand, here's the way it relates to the world. It blunts sharp edges. It unties knots. It softens the glaring light. It becomes one with the dusty world. So, once again, the TTC is not heresy. It's such a beautiful supplement, and it gives us a new but also an ancient perspective on spirituality, and I think it complements Scripture really nicely. But if you've made it this far and you're still unsure and you still think it might be uh, dangerous to read as a Christian, I'm just going to quote the famous meme here. Prove me wrong. So I'm just going to read now a poem that uh, I wrote as I was wrestling through some of these ideas. All things are in God, but is God in all things? Every river reaches the ocean, but the ocean is not a river. And yet, the sea is the river giver, graciously resaturating the air, which condenses to clouds, which allow raindrops, which become puddles, which find their way, above ground or below it, to a river. Rinse and repeat. Is God in all things? I'm not sure. Can you tell me? Thanks so much for listening to this second episode in the series. I am just so excited to be on this journey. It's something I've wanted to do for quite a while now. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to read my work, check out my blog, coreyfar.com. You can contact me there if you have any questions or comments, and you can also subscribe for email updates on future podcasts and articles. If you're more of a social media person than an email person, you'll find links to all of my profiles on the blog as well. Again, that's coreyfar.com, C-O-R-E-Y-F-A-R-R.com. Thanks so much. Grace and peace.